Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Serious XM Progress. I'm John Fugelsang. Welcome to Progress After Dark. We are very happy to have you with us. We have one of the finest shows assembled for you this evening with our amazing producer, Chris Hauselt, our amazing producer, Thea Harper. I come to you live from the panoramic splendor of the LA studios. We're back with Russ. I, hey, I got to say, the people who work on the West Coast talk to me. The ones in New York, just they, they, they try not to look at me in the halls. It's like junior high all over again. Here they just friendly. They grunt. They, they grunt at me. I gotcha. you know, yeah. But it's great to be back. Thank you guys so much. We are at 866-997-4748. We have so much going on in this show, so much to announce. Beverly Johnson, the first black woman on the cover of Vogue, will be with us tomorrow night on the Love Fest. Also, a lot of big guests coming up in the weeks to come, including uh, everyone from Bill Bradley to Dr. Phil. Can I say, can I announce these yet? They're not 100% official, but they want to come on. We're trying to, I promised you guys we'd get more big names. And Bill Bradley and Dr. Phil, they're both over six feet. They are big names. So we're very, very excited about that. And a bunch more celebrities we're working on. Rob Reiner is coming back on the show for his new movie, which is all about uh, uh, Christian fundamentalism. I better bone up and learn something about that before that comes. And of course, the sexy liberal tour. Stephanie Miller's Juggernaut is back this year. We're going to be announcing a lot of dates soon. Right now, there's only two on sale this Saturday night in San Francisco at the beautiful and historic Herbs to Theater downtown. Come on down and see Stephanie Miller and Frangela and Hal Sparks and myself as we make you laugh on the night that is one year to the day before Joe Biden will be sworn in for his second term as president as Donald Trump screams on Newsmax that it's rigged. For the next three hours, we'll be at 866-997-4748, 866-997-GRIT. We're going to be joined by our good friends Simon Moya-Smith and Julia Francella for yet another edition of our Indigenous Voices segment. Uh, presidential candidate and friend of the show, Marianne Williamson, will be with us. Yes, that's two unruly upstart Democratic presidential candidates going after the incumbent in two successive weeks. Some of you will be very mad at us for having these conversations. We welcome your calls. 866-997-4748. 866-997-GRIT. Um, what else have I got to tell you? Uh, there's a lot going on here. I'm in L.A. It's been crazy. Can I tell you? God did not want me to come to L.A. this week. Flight, Saturday night, delayed four hours. Got in really late Sunday. 
woke up, thought, let me go get groceries and be responsible for the week. I drive to the supermarket, come out, the rental car won't start. It's dead in the parking lot. They send a AAA guy to give it a jump. I said, I don't need a jump. The car's dead. AAA guy finally shows up and says, you don't need a jump. Your car's dead. I said, you don't say, really. So I had to go back to LAX, get another. And I'm doing this with my groceries. With my groceries, I have to go back to LAX. And I called them. And I say, Enterprise, if that was the company, I say, hey, uh, my car's dead. They say, okay, well, wait for the tow and then come back. I said, I got I to gotta work tonight. I'm working. I was doing stand-up at the improv. I said, I got to work. I can't do that. They said, well, you can come back now and, and, and bring your keys and then just let us know. And then they'll pick up the car. I said, that's great. Went there with my groceries. Everything's melting. And I said, hey, here's my key. I, I called before. They said, oh, yeah, we can't give you a new car until your other car is towed in. I'm standing there with groceries trying not to scream. I'm like, I'm here because y'all told me to come. So fine. Okay. Everything's settled. We, I do the show. Great audience. <laughs> Yesterday. I'm leaving the studio. We get out of here. It's nine o'clock on the West Coast. We wrap this, not midnight. Go back to my place out here. Can't park on the street because there's fire trucks everywhere. <laughs> fire trucks everywhere. And uh, it turns out there was a fire two doors down. I go into my place and the power has been cut. And it was cold. I live near the water. <laughs> So I spent the night huddled up in as many blankets as I could with no electricity. Um, it was rustic. This morning at 7 a.m., lights came on for one minute, went off again. So, I, all right, that that's fine. Uh, go outside. I got a parking ticket. A parking ticket outside my place on my own street. It's been that kind of week. God didn't want me to come here. So I'm very, very happy to be with you guys tonight. We have a great show planned. And as always, our most important guest is you. We're at 866-997-4748. 866-997-GRIT. I mean, I just, I'm trying to get over the joy of watching Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley take millions and millions in dark money donations. Have only 14% of Republicans show up to vote in the Iowa caucus just to see those three take all of those Republican dollars and redistribute their wealth. All right, let's get to it. 866-997-GRIT. This episode brought to you by the fact they're not really pro-life. Shall we prove it? Congress narrowly avoided another government shutdown. And right-wing representatives are furious at their speaker for working with Democrats to keep the government open. Now you're wondering. Wait, is this a, a new monologue or is this a replay from last October? The answer is yes and yes. Both chambers of Congress passed an extension of government funding until early March, kicking the can down the road just enough to buy themselves more time to work out a long-term spending agreement of some kind. This move avoids a shutdown, which would have started Saturday. And as we've had to tell you many times under Republican rule, it would have disrupted many government programs and services. Does this sound familiar? Does it sound like a repeat from last fall? Because this is the third extension Congress has approved since September. And, and again, uh, they're mad. They're really mad that the government did not shut down. I want to play you Chip Roy, who is an insane person. And, and remember, Chip Roy gets shared a lot for calling out the Congress, but, but realize the context. What, he's not yelling at Congress for being do-nothings. He's yelling at Congress for not shutting down the government and being do-nothings. Chip Roy. By the way, it does not matter who's sitting in the speaker's seat or who's got the majority. We keep doing the same stupid stuff. By the way. Yeah, stupid stuff meaning not shutting down the government. Empty Green is really mad. 
Marjorie Taylor Greene. I call her empty. Uh, she wrote, Today, Congress voted to avert a crisis, the government shutdown, by passing Nancy Pelosi's budget for the fourth time. I voted no for the fourth time. There are many real crises. I'm sorry if you're a dumb person with that accent who thinks I made you sound like Marjorie Taylor Greene. But this is Mike Johnson's problem, right? He's looking at these threats. They're threatening to remove him. The same right-wing Nazi clot caucus. And Democrats are debating whether they should save him or let him shuffle away like they did McCarthy. I mean, it would only take a handful of Democratic votes to rescue Mike Johnson if one of the hardliners decides to trigger a vote to oust him. One House Democrat told Axios, if Johnson lives up to his deal with Senate Dems on spending, I think you have a lot of Democrats protecting him who don't want to reward bad behavior from right-wing extremists. Now, here's the deal. Republicans love to point out when there's a Democrat in office how many Americans live paycheck to paycheck. They love to talk about that, pretending they care about non-millionaires. A government shutdown would furlough 800,000 government employees who have to wonder when they'll get their back pay. Shutting down the government is not a serious solution to a border crisis or anything else. A government shutdown would hurt Border Patrol. It would hurt people working on the front lines to keep Texas safe. A government shutdown would delay veterans programs, nutrition assistance, military benefits. 10,000 kids from Federal Head Start would lose access to preschool. FEMA might run out of funds at a time when we've been hit by multiple major disasters like fires and hurricanes. Because they're not really pro-life. Meanwhile, today the Department of Justice released their long-awaited Uvalde report, which documented police failure in the shooting that cost the lives of 19 children and two teachers in 2022. 600-plus page report chronicling in gruesome detail how law enforcement failed children and teachers at the shooting in the school in Uvalde, Texas. The report describes the response by law enforcement as failure, no one taking full command, the school's police chief taking actions that delayed efforts to save lives. Local police acted with no urgency to establish a clear command structure during the shooting. Merrick Garland met with victims' families on Wednesday to brief them on the report before it was released to the public. Here is Attorney General Garland addressing reporters at the release of the 600-page DOJ report, which will change nothing on the Uvalde massacre in Texas. As I told families and survivors last night, the department's review concluded that a series of major failures, failures in leadership, in tactics, in communications, in training, and in preparedness, were made by law enforcement lawyers and others responding to the mass shooting at Robb Elementary. As a result, 33 students and three of their teachers, many of whom have been shot, were trapped in a room with an active shooter for over an hour as law enforcement officials remained outside. I mean, if police had continued to push into the classrooms, the report says, the 18-year-old gunman, Salvador Ramos, who Republicans think should easily be allowed to own a semi-automatic rifle designed to kill lots of human beings really fast, an 18-year-old, if they pushed into the classrooms, he would have been shot dead sooner. Fewer children would have been murdered. Instead, it took 77 minutes before federal border agents eventually burst into a classroom and killed Mr. Ramos. 376 law enforcement officers responded to the Uvalde school shooting, and for 77 minutes, as kids were being slaughtered, they did nothing. Five school officers, eight federal DEA officers, 13 U.S. Marshals, 16 sheriff's deputies, 25 Uvalde officers, 69 officers of nearby law enforcement, 
91 state police officers, plus 149 U.S. Border Patrol agents. They responded 376 law enforcement and for 77 minutes did nothing. The law enforcement response to automatic weapon-powered school shootings? Well, (laughs) that's not the problem. But this report makes it seem like that's the problem. The problem is not that cops were scared and responded slowly to a kid with an automatic weapon killing people. The problem is kids with automatic weapons killing people. The problem is civilian access to machines designed to murder lots of humans really fast. That's the problem. The entire report. If you want to beat up on cops, it's great. But the problem isn't that the cops didn't do anything to stop the guy with the gun. The problem is that guy never should have been allowed to own that gun. And that's why all of our capitalist allies don't have these shootings. Imagine. What a lack of freedom. I've said it before, I'll say it again. An AR-15 is not your God-given right. It's your goddamned entertainment. And by the way, 376 law enforcement officers. So much for that GOP talking point about the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is 376 good guys with a gun. Stop repeating their fucking lies, media. I know slaughter of children is great for your ratings. I know blood and weeping parents and helicopter shots of kids running out in panic lines from schools is great for your numbers. But you guys, it's acceptable to you. And it's acceptable to the Republican Party because they won't do anything to make it harder for any mentally and emotionally unstable young male from getting a weapon designed to kill lots of humans really fast because... They're not really pro-life. Which brings us to the U.S. Border Patrol. They're saying Texas National Guard troops blocked them from rescuing a woman and two children who died crossing the Rio Grande. The Border Patrol says they were prevented from intervening. And this woman and her two children drowned in the Rio Grande Friday night in Eagle Pass, Texas, after U.S. border agents were prevented from responding. Now, take a moment and go on Twitter And check out how many right-wing Christians are thrilled that this woman and their two children died. That's what they got. It's her fault. She brought the kids in the river. (sighs) Yorle Ruby, 10 years old. Jonathan Augustin Briones de la Sancha, 8 years old. They're dead now. And in a statement, a Department of Homeland Security spokesperson said, U.S. Border Patrol agents were told by the Mexican government that you've got migrants in the water and they're in distress. And the Border Patrol agents, hear me out, they're the good guys in this story. The Border Patrol agents were unable to enter the area from the U.S. side because Texas National Guard troops, under the direction of revoltingly fake Christian Greg Abbott, stopped them from doing so. Department of Homeland Security said Texas officials obstructed Border Patrol's attempts to rescue the migrants. Tragically, a woman and two children drowned last night in the Shelby Park area of Eagle Pass, which was commandeered by the state of Texas earlier this week. In responding to a distress call from the Mexican government, Border Patrol agents were physically barred by Texas officials from entering the area. U.S. Border Patrol agents knew these migrants could drown. Mexico tried to help. The Border Patrol tried to help. Texas National Guard said... We don't care. Border Patrol agents made physical contact with the Texas Military Department and the Texas National Guard at Shelby Park Entrance Gate. Relayed the information. Texas Military Department soldiers stated they would not grant access to the migrants, even in the event of an emergency. Two dead children. (sighs) 
In a statement to NBC News, White House correspondent Ali Rafa said one thing is clear about Saturday night's incident. Governor Abbott's political stunts are cruel, inhumane and dangerous. U.S. Border Patrol must have access to the border to enforce our laws. And this is the new battle, friends. This is the new battle. It's Texas saying, no, federal government, you can't come in there. You can't have access to this border because the right wing point of view, friends, is now this. It is not the United States border. It is the Texas border. (laughs) This is sedition, literally. This is sedition. And they should refer the sedition to the Department of Justice so Merrick Garland can make them tea and give them a long foot massage. You're going to hear a lot more people saying we need to federalize members of the Texas National Guard because of inhumane bullshit like this. That the president has the duty and the responsibility to federalize the Texas National Guard to use those units to escort DHS and ICE and Border Patrol to their places of duty and protect the agents while they're doing their jobs. There is precedent for this. President John F. Kennedy did it with the Alabama National Guard. In 1963, Biden, he's threatened to refer to the Justice Department where Merrick Garland will offer to come to their house and feed the fish. Is America safer now? The U.S. Constitution covers everyone on U.S. territory, not just citizens. It's a crime. The Guard followed an illegal order. Remember, they don't care about undocumented immigration. They don't care about undocumented immigration. If they did, they would lock up the people doing the hiring. They want a humanitarian crisis. It helps them get votes. And they don't care about Christianity. This is the same Greg Abbott who last week said the only thing we are not doing is we're not shooting people who come across the border because, of course, the Biden administration would charge us with murder. But only because that would be murder. (sighs) Remember, friends, this is happening because they're not pro-life. We want to know what you think. We're at 866-997-4748. We'll be back in just a moment with your calls and with our friend, the one and only Marianne Williamson. This is Sirius XM Progress. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Hey all, Glenn Kirshner here. Friends, I hope you'll join me on my audio podcast, Justice Matters. We talk about not only the legal issues of the day, but we also talk about the need to reform ethics in our government. Here's one example, the oath of office. You know the one. I do solemnly swear to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Let's add 22 words to that oath. Quote, 
and I will promptly report any instances of crime and or corruption by government officials and employees of which I become aware. Friends, our democracy is worth fighting for. Join us in this fight, because justice matters. Look for Justice Matters wherever you ordinarily find your podcasts. And welcome back. I'm always happy to have our friend Marianne Williamson on the show. She is, as you know, a best-selling author, a committed activist, a spiritual thought leader. She's running to be the Democratic nominee for president of the United States. She is the only candidate calling for a ceasefire. She's the only candidate calling for universal basic income. And in the latest Quinnipiac poll, she is polling at 13 percent, which is higher than Ron DeSantis, which is higher than Vivek Ramaswamy. She is polling at three times the numbers Dean Phillips has, which is probably why Dean Phillips dispatched his vassal, Andrew Yang, to make this obnoxious little display in a speech. Uh, Chris, can you play that little clip of Andrew Yang? expect and deserve. Uh, I ask you to join us in challenging the true enemy. The true enemy is the political establishment that does not care about our families and communities and a media cabal that will suppress or demonize anyone who wants to change things on behalf Keep of the listening. people of this country. Okay. Marianne Dean is our best chance to change things. <laughs> I am looking forward to serving in his administration and I hope that you will join us. Yeah. Okay, so he's calling on her to step down. And, 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 and it's really nice that these venture capitalist millionaires who have no understanding of politics look out for each other. But Marianne responded, wow, Andrew Yang, the days of a woman stepping aside on the assumption that a man can do a better job are over. Deeply disappointed in you guys. And the answer is no. Friends, welcome back to the show. Our friend Marianne Williamson. Happy New Year. My candidate friend, welcome. Thank you, John. It's always so nice to be with you and Happy New Year to you as well. Thank you. It's really lovely to see you. How are you doing and and are you enjoying this campaign process at all? I know it's grueling. I know it's thankless. I know it's all uphill. How has it been for you in New Hampshire? Well, it was much more fun last time because last time there were so many candidates and it was like being in a tribe and everybody's traveling around together. And it was it was fun. Yeah. Um, and also the system was not as mean. Last time they were they were satisfied to simply mock me, make fun of me, crystal lady. Uh, this time they are they're not joking around. They don't want me here. And nothing on CNN, nothing on MSNBC, throwing me off ballots, erasing me, invisibilizing me in ways that are um, disturbing, I think. I understand that. That part's not fun. And that part's really like, I wonder what country this is. So this idea that political parties just decide that they are entitled to make the decisions for the people, basically what we're talking about here, their job is to facilitate democracy, not manipulate it, not suppress it. So, yeah. So it's not fun to be at the effect of all that because you don't get an equal playing field. You know, people don't know. People don't even know that I exist because exactly when you're running Mm-hmm. I want to remind everyone that Marianne is running as a Democrat, not Thank as a you. third party spoiler candidate like our friend and outpatient Robert Kennedy Jr. I mean, you are running. You ran as a Democrat last time. You supported the man who got the nomination. You're running again this time. And to me, it's like we know this is the history of the party, Marianne. The liberals have to lead 
so the Democrats can eventually catch up and take credit for these policies the liberals were pushing years before. And and so I, I want to talk about the issues with you and the issues that you're campaigning on, because you're making a lot of very bold proclamations that I'd like to see any candidate for a Democratic nomination make. Really quick, last week you were in New York for a debate on uh, Dan Abrams' show over there on News Nation with our friend Jenk and with uh, that same Dean Phillips who sends his lackeys to tell you to drop out. I guess, did did Dean Phillips tell you to your face at all? Did he come aside in the green room and ask you to drop out or does he just send Andrew Yang out to do that for him? That's pretty funny because Andrew called me last night. Yeah. And I would not have thought from that phone call. He even said he'd come at one of my events and uh, there was nothing in that call. And also... The way he threw in that little, oh, I'm looking forward to serving in the administration. I hope you'll join us. Felt like a little wink, wink that maybe he was passing on a message, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm I'm going to be at an event with Dean tomorrow. I expect it to be quite awkward, actually. And he said, (laughs) he said in his gaggle that I didn't ask her to leave. And Mm. boys will be boys, John. Oh, I know it. Believe me. I die, die, die testosterone rots the brain, Marianne. I've wrote a book about it. It's true. Um, but, you know, I want to I want to talk about UBI because I'm pretty sure that you are the first presidential candidate to add universal basic income to a, a presidential platform. And you're you're not running with some UBI pilot proposal. You're really running with a UBI policy proposal. A lot of folks don't know much about UBI yet. Those who do lean in will. But this is the sort of thing that lifts people out of poverty and stimulates local economies. Well, this is the thing we have to face. There has been a 50-year war on the middle class and the poor in this country. And that's that's really the primary thesis to all of this. We have 39% of Americans who now say that they regularly skip meals in order to uh, pay for their rent. This is in the United States of America. So my UBI plan starts with older people and children. So right now, obviously, in terms of uh, uh, Social Security, we need to scrap the cap, go up to at least $250,000. But beyond that, what we should do is everybody who is uh, receiving Social Security, if they do not receive Social Security that equals $1,200 a month, then they will get $1,200 a month, even if the government compensates. But beyond that, we have more women living in, in poverty because of so many women, elderly women, because yes. of so many women ha- who were working at unpaid jobs. They were raising children. They were taking care of a home and so forth. So everybody, whether it's a man or a woman, will get that $1,200 a month at uh, the age of 65. And then we have to go to, to children. And that would be $400 a month for a child. So the small incremental changes are simply not enough. People's lives are falling apart and we need fundamental economic reform. So the UBI is just part of a larger comprehensive economic bill of rights, universal health care, tuition-free college and tech school, subsidized child care, paid family leave, guaranteed living wage, and, and guaranteed affordable housing. We need to build five to 10 units, five to 10 million units of social housing. We need basically a housing Marshall Plan in this country. The the political elite in both parties are not acknowledging the level of breakdown, personal and societal breakdown that is going on in this country. And that's why nominating Joe Biden is such a bad idea in 2024, because this race will be much more like 2016. And in 2016, the Democrats lost in large part because they either were clueless or simply appeared clueless about the level of rage out there, the level of despair. And the level of despair is the same 
And in a temperament, it depends on what your temperament is. That that energy, if you have a certain kind of temperament, it's outward, hostility, anger, violence. If it's turned inward, it's uh, depression. Yeah. Suicide, despair, even, even uh, suicide. So but to me, public policy should help people thrive. It should help repair people's lives, not ignore the wounds. And, yes, uh, that's, that's spirituality and patriotism intersecting, right? right? I mean, what's going to help the most people and hurt the fewest? And that's what Franklin Roosevelt said government should be doing. And that's what traditional, that's the traditional, uh, you know, pillar, pillars of the Republic, of the Democratic Party, the unequivocal, unabashed advocacy for the working people of the United States. At this point, how they think anything less than that, anything less inspiring than that is going to defeat Donald Trump is to me delusional. The only way we're going to beat him and the way we legitimately should beat him is by offering to the American people the chance at a better life. That's it. In the 1970s, John, the average American couple could afford a house and they could afford a car and they could afford a yearly vacation and they could afford for one family, uh, one parent to stay home. That's right. One salary, one salary could support a family of four and they could send their kids to college. That was a thriving middle class. And there has been in the last 50 years, I know I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, $50 trillion transfer of wealth into the hands of 1%. It's been a war. It's yeah. a war of the middle class and the poor. There is no middle class anymore. How long are we going to just be, continue with this codependent relationship with a political status quo that is predicated on the maintenance of a permanent underclass? Uh, I'm just, I wasn't ready to be quiet uh, in the face of such things. Well, that's why UBI is so smart, because, again, it's not like you're giving people massive billionaire tax cuts where they can just do stock buybacks and no one is helped by it. When a person with low income is given a check, they spend the money. They spend it locally. They spend it in their community and You're help right. circulate in the local economy. So That's I think the exactly more people right. the more people learn about that, the more popular it will be become it will become and we know this is true because the more folks have learned about paid family leave, the more we've seen among Democrats, independents, and Republicans, the majority of Americans want it. It's moral. It's good for the economy. It's it's good for families. All of our capitalist allies overseas have it. Marianne, why has it been so hard to get a program that is popular with every demographic of American political ideology actually passed into law? People want it. And yet no one seems to be able to move it across the line. Because our lawmakers are bought and paid for by this matrix of corporate power. Insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies, big food, big uh, chemical companies, big ag, big gun manufacturers, big oil and defense contractors. And they, uh, policy after policy, pass laws that do more to serve the profit-making uh, goals, profit maximization of their donors, than to serve the expressed will and or the safety, health, and well-being of, of the American people. And as you said, the majority of Republicans, as well as Democrats, not as big a majority, but a majority of Republicans, as well as Democrats, want universal health care. 86% of Americans want dental. They want, right. uh, they want hearing. They want eyeglasses. They want to live. People want to thrive. And a majority of Republicans, as well as Democrats, want tuition-free college and tech school, which we had in this country until uh, the 1970s. It's 
outrageous how people have been trained to expect so little. Trained, just what people are constricted. People are constricted by these invisible chains of economic insecurity and stress. Then we wonder where the mental health crisis comes from. Exactly. And so the Republican Party is offering crumbs and the Democratic corporatists, what they promise cookies, like you could live on cookies either. You are also the only Democratic presidential candidate, or I guess I should say the only presidential candidate calling for a ceasefire in Gaza and Palestine now. Um, you know, I, I'll tell you, I, I care about the people of Israel. I care about the people of Gaza. I think this whole conflict shows why having right wing fundamentalist religious people in power always leads to the exact opposite of what the holy books teach. We're seeing it proven over and over again. It's very possible to have empathy for Israeli people and to have empathy for Palestinian people and hate their leadership. But I, I got to say, having said that, Marianne, I don't remember voting for Bibi Netanyahu to call the shots in our government. It seems to be really hard to remind this gentleman who controls some of these purse strings. And you've said it's not enough to say the conversation is over. We need the military support to be over. How would a Williamson administration handle a situation like Netanyahu's recalcitrance? I'd say, baby, we're not doing it anymore. This, this is we, we, we love you, and we're not doing it anymore. We, we are not supporting an ally at the expense uh, of our own moral values, as barbaric, as evil as October seventh was, and uh, there is, it is unacceptable to me to minimize that in any way. At the same time, I don't believe there's strategic or moral justification uh, for the bombardment of Gaza. And at this point, John. We know, even those of us who understand the horror of October 7th, this did not come out of a vacuum. Not at all. The settlements are illegal. The, the occupation of the West Bank is illegal. The siege, the, the blockade of Gaza. Let's get on with it now. We need a two-state solution. It is the only, the only solution. There never was a military solution to this problem. There isn't a military solution to it now. All that this is going to do is create more hatred for decades. And uh, we need the release of those hostages. Yes. We need a ceasefire. And we need an international consortium. And the United States can't lead that. But we can be a passionate participant in a, an architecture for a two-state solution. It's the only it is the only solution. The only part of that I disagree with is when you said that uh, that uh, it's not strategic. I think what Netanyahu is doing is very strategic. It's a strategy to keep himself in power and out of yeah. prison. But we, we keep I'm hearing... not strategic for the actual well-being of, of the nation. Correct. Of Correct. But we, we you've heard this. We have our friends on the left and our friends on the right are all now beginning to have this chorus of a two state solutions impossible. We've heard Muslim and Jewish voices alike say it. My response is what? What other solution is there? There's either a two-state solution or there's genocide or there's more of the same. Choose one. These are people who, even when they do not live side by side, the enmity, and at this point, the horror. And so what, you're going to like just throw them all together and say, okay, guys, just be one state now. That is, if ever there was a setup of the bloodiest of civil wars. And also, when you when you scratch the surface and you ask such people, now, who's how, what's going to be the form of government? You've got the Knesset over here. You've got the Palestinian Authority over there. You've got Hamas. Who's going to run this thing? One young man said to me, well, it's not any different, he said, than when the South won the war, uh, lost the a war. I said, it sure is different. We had a constitution. We had a federal government. They just yeah. had to go home, come <laughs> home. Uh, so if ever there was a, I don't even want to 
pie, pie in the sky doesn't describe it. It's delusional. It's like, how do you, so how, who's going to run this thing? Exactly. <laughs> it's not going to happen. And also it is a, it is a covert call for the complete delegitimization of, of the nation of Israel. And they know that on some level. Closer to home, we're still being divided by, of course, the border drama. Um, I'm a big fan of pointing out that if the Republican Party wanted border crossings to stop, they would take down the help wanted sign at our southern border. You lock up employers who hire undocumented immigrants for a month. The border crossings stop. The supply and demand. Take the take the do- job dangling away. They won't do that. <laughs> they don't want to stop it. They need the conflict. They need the strife at the border to run on. So, you know, they're they're avoiding having any Donald Trump ordered them not to make any border deals with this president. They want the human rights catastrophe. How would a Williamson administration call these people out and begin to confront this situation when you're really not debating a fair opponent? They're going to say whatever you do, it's open borders when in reality that was Reagan's policy. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. He gave millions of people uh, amnesty. And of course, George George Bush was quite progressive on on the top. Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the reasons I want to be president, John, is because we need to talk about root causes as well as symptoms. So on the level of the symptom, uh, no, no wall will work. No surveillance system will work. Uh, This is a failure on the part of Congress that goes back decades. We obviously need more judges. We need more infrastructure. Uh, We need more of an ability. People come in, they are humanely housed while they are interrogated. Where is there the establishment of credible fear for asylum? Then you move them on to the next stage of their uh, journey, integrating. The others have to go back to their home of origin. However, Mm. we have to talk about why this is happening. And because the United States has its fingerprints on both categories. One category is the unbelievable economic devastation of so many of these economies whose economic destabilization was in many cases, at least indirectly caused by, hello, American economic imperialism, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to be willing to repair what in many cases we broke. Right now, our humanitarian aid to Latin America is something like 200 million, which is nothing. And we have to remove the sanctions from Venezuela, remove the sanctions from Cuba, also take them off the terrorist list, and address so many of these of these destabilized economies where we were part of the problem to begin with. Now, well, let's the second, not forget. Oh, go ahead. I'm so sorry, Marianne. Well, I was just going to say the second category, of course, has to do with the horrifying violence that is perpetrated by the drug cartels. Oh, you get you. You got it. That's what I was going to ask about. Please do. We need to end the drug war. And that's one of my main policies under under drugs on the issue page at Marianne2024.com. Let's end the drug war. It was initiated by Richard Nixon. It was bogus to begin with. We've wasted a trillion dollars. We spend a hundred billion a year for that. Let's move into decriminalization, harm reduction, plan for ultimate legalization. And we've taken away a lot of the black market from the drug cartels. Also, I will take action of that and use that for uh, a world class network of recovery options. You know how a lot of times presidents have a drug czar? I want a recovery czar. I I want to bring recovery into the primary political ethers. And then also the one last thing about that is it will give us bandwidth and resources to spend on the one drug that actually is a public, serious public enemy, and that is fentanyl. Yes. I have to say a couple of years back, I was doing stand-up for the troops, Marianne, in El Salvador and Honduras. 
And a lot of my friends were surprised that we had military bases in El Salvador and Honduras, but we do exclusively for the drug war. And in Honduras, on the Air Force base where I stayed, all the buildings had been made in the Reagan administration out of wood. And by this century, they were literally being eaten by termites. Like I was on a military base that's being eaten by termites because it was never meant to last that long. It was the greatest metaphor I'd ever encountered for the folly of our drug war. And let's not forget, so many of these folks from Central America applying for asylum are fleeing the violence of the drug war we fund. That's exactly right. And also those those military installations, I think people would be surprised by a lot of them. There are 800 around the world in 80 countries. Now, some of them are legitimate. Some of them protect commerce, etc. But I, I could just go Start closing some of those. I remember when that drone situation happened in Syria a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. And I remember saying to friends, why are we in Syria? Nobody could tell. Like, well, kind of, uh, it protects us from ISIS, but it's actually an attractor uh-huh. of ISIS. Um, <laughs> why are we in so, Yemen? We don't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to ask you about one more thing, and that is uh, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Three words that our Republican friends really don't like. And they really don't want to get specific about why. But I think we know our friend Dean Phillips just dropped all references to DEI on his campaign website after Bill Ackman, his new million dollar right wing super PAC donor, said it was a mistake. I find our Republican friends, Marianne, are never mad at racism. They're constantly mad at things that try to fight racism. DEI, Black Lives Matter. They were more mad at Colin Kaepernick's knee then they were mad at Derek Chauvin's knee. How can we reach out to our right-wing friends who are being groomed to think anything that negates racism hurts them? Well, you know, John, I, I don't, it's a, people are going to believe what they're going to believe. For me, and, and nobody has a monopoly on the truth, and they have a right to think what they think. I think the left spends too much time worrying about the right and not enough time activating our own political power, where they don't, they don't spend that, you know, that they're smarter than we are. They spend more time actually building their own power. And so whenever we're lured into worrying about how to quote unquote convince them, I I think that there are enough people on the right as on the left who recognize what's happening at the bottom of all this, which is not right, left. The real power dynamic and the real struggle is not right, left. It's up, down. It's the powerful versus the powerless. So I don't have to talk to them about every little thing. I want to talk to them about how they're being screwed at work, whether you're on the right or the left. That's the moment of possibility. There were Trump supporters on that UAW strike, right? So I, I don't want to get waylaid on stuff like that. I mean, it's it's interesting. It's kind of fun. It's like, ooh, Bill Ackman gave him a million dollars. And oh, my God, who was working on his, on his campaign that didn't realize if they took it down from the website, somebody was going to see that. But that's all horse race. It's and true. And that's just not what I want to put my attention. I want to put my attention on the fact that the average American, the the majority of Americans are working paycheck to paycheck. The majority of Americans can't absorb a $500 unexpected expenditure are hungry, 25, uh, half of our seniors living on less than $25,000 a year. That's how we're going to convince them to take a more progressive view. Not by trying to wrangle with them about left versus right social issues. We are going to build our power base by presenting with respect the realization that we are all living under economic tyranny, promulgated by a matrix of corporate overlords. And on that, we can probably agree with a lot more people than we might think. And if what we're really trying to do is build power 
that's what will put our attention and we'll stay disciplined about it. That is so true. And talking about how the economy is rigged by the powerful against working people is the surest way to build a coalition with our gaslit Republican loved ones. You're right. Right. And, you know, and Martin Luther King said, you have very little morally persuasive power with people who can feel your underlying contempt. So the smug self-righteous stuff that we all fall into, there's a lot of stuff we don't need to discuss because there's so much that we should be discussing. And I really... I think the majority, you know, even you and me talking about that, which is not to say that DEI stuff isn't important, but there are millions and millions and millions of people who don't even have the time, bandwidth, or luxury of keeping their attention on something. Absolutely. Like Absolutely. And you're exactly right. You were the I one. Just... John, John, remember, <laughs> I... you made that movie. Remember a yes. long time ago? Yeah, I made a whole movie about this. Yeah. I, I just look for That's any right. excuse to beat up I, I on mean, Dean that... Phillips. But yes, you actually screened my film at Sister Giant in D.C. a couple and of years back. And it was back. amazing. Do, does everybody know about that film? Uh, I mean, no, you, but I'm, I'm still trying to get the word out. We, we're, we're, oh, I share the link. I mean, that, that movie was a real opening for me. Uh, and I remember that woman who had a little girl and she had to take three buses to go to work. That's right. Yeah. I remember two buses and uh, that movie is an incredible. So everybody... John Fuchsang made an incredible film about it's poverty called, in America. It's called Dream On, and I'll send uh, I'll send you a link anytime if you want to uh, have it for your staff. And and yes. listen, I want to I want to thank you for joining us and having a conversation that focuses on the issues and the policies that a Williamson administration would go for. Uh, Marianne Williamson is, of course, seeking the Democratic Party nomination for president. Where is the best place for our listeners to go to learn more or donate to your campaign? Thank you, darling. Marianne2024.com. M-A-R-I-A-N-N-E. Marianne2024.com. Help me get there. Uh, please, stay warm in New, please stay warm in New Hampshire, and I look forward to seeing you again very soon. Thank you so much, Don. Thank you. Quick break. We'll be right back. This is Progress. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker or wherever you get your podcasts on because you know I love it when you do.
I'm John Fugelsang. This is SiriusXM Progress. We are at 866-997-4748. We're going to be joined very shortly by Julie Franchella and Simon Moya-Smith. We're going to take care of a couple of your calls in the meantime. Thank you guys so much for your patience on hold. Let's try uh, Sam, who is calling from uh, Tennessee. Welcome, Sam. You're on Progress. Hey, John. It's so hey. exciting to get through to you. Well, I listen to a bit of your show almost every night, but I've never called before. Okay. I'm glad you're glad to have the honor. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'm a writer in the realms of spirituality and philosophy, so I really respect Marianne Williamson, and I'm glad that you uh, you give her a chance. You give her a hearing. I really appreciate that. Oh, well, thank you for saying so. Yeah. Um, a lot of people don't like that I have her on, but I've always had her on the show uh, just because she's running for president's no reason not to. And again, if she was running as a third party spoiler, uh, I'd have issues, but she's not. She's running as a Democrat. And I think you have to have the liberals out there to flood the zone with these policies. So in 20 years, Democrats can pretend they thought them up. Yeah, I love it. I completely agree. And, you know, I've enjoyed her podcast. She's a valuable voice to have on our team absolutely thank you she'll I'm definitely so be supporting it. uh i think she'll be supporting biden you know she's not going to be be a running third party like you said no she will not and uh yeah my latest book is called the dirty parts of the bible i would love for you to check it out because i would love to yeah tell tell the kids how we are, can how can we how can we find your book it's called the dirty parts of the bible do you want to give us your your full name so people can look it up Yes, it's uh, Sam Tarode, T-O-R-O-D-E, and the book is on Amazon. I just came out with a graphic novel version. So well, the, for now the you're speaking my language. I like books with pictures. <laughs> well, I would, I would love to send you a free copy if your producer can take a, can give me the address. But I, I thank you so much for all the biblical wisdom that you put forth on the radio oh. every day. I love it. You're very kind. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. Um, I don't know. Can we put him on hold so we can so so Chris can give him uh, my my address? Chris is just going to tell you Port Authority bus terminal. He's not going to be helpful. He's, yeah, he's gonna... yeah. You know, we'll probably do. Yeah. So I'm going to put you on hold, and I'll ask Thea to uh, exchange an email address so we can reach you offline. Wonderful. Thank All you right. so thank, so much. Thank you. Thank you for your kind words, Love Sam. I really appreciate your low standards in radio. Thank you for liking us. 866-997-GRIT. Really, really quick. Um, let me go to Mark in Maryland, who's been on hold forever. Mark, thank you for your patience. Welcome. Oh, dude, man, uh, I love your show. Thanks. Um, I've never uh, really, you know, entertained a lot of things. But I'm looking at this, uh, this uh, what do you call it, this uh, Republican... Uh, crap on CNN and Nikki Haley. Yeah. She started off with just bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and killing me. It is fucking killing me. I'm Let me tell you something. You know how sexist we are? Nikki Haley's gender is the only thing keeping her from being taken seriously as a lying fascist. You know, like if a guy flip-flopped as much as her, we would never hear the end of it. No, we wouldn't hear the end of it. And this this bullshit is killing me because, I, I mean, she's a Native American, right? No, she's in, right? Indian. Or, in, she's Indian American, not American Indian. Her family came from India. Indian American, what, whatever the fuck she is. She well, no, doesn't no, it's it. We, 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 it. I mean, it no, matter. she does. She does. She does. We, she doesn't. I mean, she, she doesn't go by her birth name, Nimrata, because her party is too racist. So she calls herself Nikki and says her party's not racist. 
Get the fuck out of here, man. Come on, man. I'm not making that up. That's the those are the best facts. Man, that she started off with a lie and then she started Are you watching this? Did you hear what she said? Tonight on CNN, would you believe I'm on the radio right now and not able to watch CNN? How is this the town hall? How did it go? It's the town hall. It's going horrible okay. for what for a me. summit. <laughs> when you see it tomorrow, you're going to yeah. be like, what the hell? Honestly, and there's then, nothing. Nikki Nikki Haley has has hardly ever surprised me, and I just think she's a lot of double talk and jive, and um, she's auditioning to be the vice president of a man she hates who hates her. It's just ugly to watch. It scares me, man, that if 51% of Republicans want to vote for a fucking dude that is, is indicted on 90-some charges. I think you're viewing it the wrong way, though, Mark. You're viewing it the wrong way. View it this way. Only 51% of Republicans want to support their party's president. Only 51. I mean, like Donald Trump in Iowa was 51-49. And the media called that a landslide. If Ron DeSantis okay. and Nikki Haley became one person, which could happen, it would have been a two-person race, 51-49. That is not a—I went to public school. My math's not great, but I'm pretty sure that's not a landslide. No, it's, it's, it, what it is is fucking disgraceful. I, I look at—I um, was in Ohio. No, I was in uh, Cincinnati, right? That's Ohio. Two months ago. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's, it's fucking out of control. But I was there <laughs> when they voted for uh, the uh, what was it? A one uh, the 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 what do they call it? The one vote or whatever. I don't know what we're talking about. In Cincinnati, the, the, the abortion okay. it, it has to do with abortion. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. To, to uh, issue one, question one. Yeah, issue, question one, where yeah. where they 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 were not going to let the Republicans rig their abortion referendum before the abortion referendum. Okay, I was there. Do yeah. you know I was at a bar, and there was a bunch of people in the bar saying "Yay" when they won, and I'm like, "Wow, there's a lot of people that don't want this shit done. They want their rights." Yeah, but but look at that. What does that tell you? I mean, Ohio had used to be a swing state. Now it's totally Republican, but overwhelmingly pro-abortion rights. That's why they're terrified. They know that their policies suck. Yeah, I know that too. And I'm sitting <laughs> here and I'm looking at all this shit. Like this, this uh, what the fuck is that girl's name? Uh, she's in a Congress. Marjorie Taylor Greene. That's yes. her name. Empty green. And, what about her? Oh, she was talking some shit the other day about uh, vaccines killing people. Yeah. And I'm like, what made you an epidemiologist or whatever he called? <laughs> Epidemiologist. Who, who made you a scientist to decide that this is happening? Where do you get your information from? You need to understand that the dumber, the the more confident she is in her dumbness, the more her supporters support her. So she's not going to pay a price for that. And by the way, Donald Trump is vaxxed and boosted, and she will never she will never mention that. Oh, I, I'm I'm pretty sure she's vaxxed and 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 also, but all this misinformation 
kills our society. Yeah. I mean, it's like, uh, did you, have you seen the movie, uh, flowers of, uh, killers of the flower moon, killers of the flower moon. Yes. Yes. I've, I've not only have I seen it, but I've seen it twice and it's better the second time. Do you know that that's actually a true story? Just You're going like, to want to listen to our next two guests because they have a lot to say about that film uh, who are coming up as soon as this call wraps. Yeah, it's a de- it's a definitely a true story. It's ethnic cleansing. Robert De Niro should win an Oscar for playing the scariest smiling white supremacist I've ever seen in a movie. And you know what? He was an underlying white supremacist like what's going on right now. Yeah. And yeah. that is what's scary. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, and, and then you got Marjorie Taylor Greene. And this yeah. other this other person <laughs> talking about there was no racism and there is no racism in America. Come That's on, Nikki Haley. Man. That's Nikki Haley's rap. There's no racism here. There's no racism. Oh, but uh, I don't want to call myself by my birth name. We got to run, Mark. I really appreciate the call. It's a riot talking to you. Don't be a stranger. Call us more often, okay? Man, I try, man. You're you're a very popular guy. <laughs> oh well, hey. If I can fool you, I can gaslight anyone. Thank you so much. 866-997-GRIT. I am so pleased to welcome Simon and Julie back to the show. We know how much you guys love this segment. We get your emails. Simon Moya-Smith's an Oglala Lakota and Chicano journalist. He's a contributing writer at NBC News and TheNation.com. He's the author of the forthcoming book, Your Spirit Animal is a Jackass. He's an adjunct professor of indigenous studies at the University of Colorado, Denver. Julie Francella is an activist, an artist, a, a great painter, a writer, and a veteran mental health professional professional with over 28 years of experience. She served as executive director of a domestic violence center and spent 13 years as a clinical caseworker at a residential treatment center for indigenous youth and families. She's an enrolled member of the Ojibwe of Batuana First Nation Reserve and works with First Nations University of Canada and is a professor at Durham College, where she teaches about the profound impacts of colonization on First Nations people. Simon and Julie, welcome back. It's great to have you. Hi, thanks for having us back. We're so happy to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you. People love this segment. I get letters all week. People call about it all week. Um, before we jump in, I, I just want to say I had the experience of watching Killers of the Flower Moon when it first opened in the theater, and I appreciated it. I had some issues. I finally seen it a second time now, knowing it, and I, I, I loved it. It was so much better the second time around, being prepared for the suffering and heartache and pain that came. I was ready for it. I wasn't overwhelmed with the grief and horror because it's a deeply horrific film. But uh, I, I just, I, I, I appreciated it the first time. I was blown away the second time. I hope Lily Gladstone walks home with an Oscar. That's amazing. I, I haven't had a chance to see it a second time, but I really want to. And I think for that reason, like you, you kind of have to get through the the horror of it all. And then I think second time you'll be able to actually sit and really absorb the performances and all the nuances. You know, I, I turned my head a few times um, during some of the scenes. It was just so horrific to watch, especially, you know, when we're dealing with, you know, the, the missing and murdered indigenous women that I've actually been involved with a lot um, currently. And so it was really hard to watch. I'm yeah. really, um, looking forward to seeing it a second time so that I can sort of marinate in it a little bit like like you did. 
I mean, Simon, you and I spoke when the film first was released, and my big problem with it was that the Leonardo DiCaprio character, and he's excellent in the film, but that it was an anti-hero, that he's just kind of this weasel who's not a good guy, but not really has the guts to be a bad guy, and he just kind of yeah. drifts around, and watching it a second time, I thought, that's the perfect story, because he symbolizes so many of the white majority who weren't pure villains, but they weren't good people at the same time, and allowed these atrocities mm-hmm. to happen. Yeah, just didn't say shit. Didn't yeah. do anything. You know, when things would happen, they would they would pass it along and say, well, maybe somebody will do something. And a lot of them didn't. A lot of them just sat passively and said, well, that sucks. And they went about their their, you know, their way. But again, and I've said this to you before, um, there's some element of trauma porn for me with the film. It's yes. really hard for a lot of folks, indigenous folks to watch it. Just like Julie was saying, if you are studying and are very familiar with murdered and missing indigenous women, girls and two spirits, watching that first 10, 15 minutes is really traumatic. And for us, I, I know that I, it's it's labeled a drama, but for us, that's that's a horror. I agree. I completely agree. That's why, I mean, the first time it was difficult to watch, but what killed me about it, and I'll get off it right now, but in the end of the film, Mm. when Lily Gladstone finally confronts him about the things he did to her, he's done all these horrible, evil things, but he's still obsessed with lying to himself that he's been a good guy. And in that sense, Mm -hmm. I found the character to be a stand-in for so much of white America that doesn't want to believe they were a part of this ethnic cleansing, even though they did participate in it. And and it was a, it was a character I had never seen when I first saw it. I didn't think the character worked when I saw it again. Um, yeah. It just made the horror all the more real and immediate to me. Yeah. You know, Lily was talking about talking to the daughter of Molly and Ernest and saying that it was really he really embodied, you know, who that man was. And, and when they were talking with uh, members of the Osage Nation, it was very difficult because as they were watching Leonardo DiCaprio sort of, you know, um, have this characterization of this this man, a lot of people had to walk off the set because it was so realistic. And a lot of people were saying that, you know, it was obviously, you know, um, there were stories about what this man portrayed and how he was around, you know, the community and, and in the community. And so apparently Leonardo DiCaprio really captured the essence of what this man was all about. And so I think that really came through, you know, yeah. and that's, that's the whole story. Our, our villains in life are not, you know, that painted the bad guy. They're not wearing the, you know, the, the cloak and the cape and, you know, a, yeah, a scary course. mask. Yeah. Nope. They're our neighbors or they're, you know, oftentimes, you know, parts of our community. And that's, I think it was really um, portrayed very well by, DiCaprio, but also De Niro. I just thought he was Absolutely. incredible. No, De Niro. De Niro's incredible in this movie. I mean, it, it just. I mean, because I know white supremacists who smile all the time and are really nice, and it was chilling. Oh, yeah. um, but I know, I know. Today, I want to. Yeah. I want to talk with you guys about about religious freedom, um, and and you know, we we've talked about this a, a lot in the past, and uh, I want to I want to pick your brains about the subject. Uh, many of the founding fathers, like Jefferson and Madison, were. Obviously, advocates for the separation of church and state. Um, And Julie, you were pointing out Jefferson's Virginia statute for religious freedom and the Establishment Clause in the First Amendment reflect a clear intent to prevent government endorsement of any particular religion. This is something we talk a lot about in regards to white people. (laughs) But what is the indigenous perspective on this debate about the wall between religion and government? Well, yeah, well, I mean, you know, for indigenous people, 
we look at religion as being, you know, um, the language of the oppressors in, in, in a way because the religious bodies were in cahoots with the government in bringing about these, you know, the, the residential schools and the boarding schools. Yes. They were sanctioned by the government, but they were run by uh, the churches. So, you know, in, in that sense, we... I don't want to speak for everyone, but you know there are a very high percentage of indigenous people that are religious. But in that sense, you know, for me personally, I have a lot of friends now that are involved in the churches. But for indigenous people, that's not um, you know something that has been what we would consider you know an allyship with with um, the churches, et cetera. Absolutely, absolutely. Simon, we've talked a lot about the residential schools and how Canada has begun having this reckoning about what the church and the government did. But America, Mm -hmm. we're not even ready to start talking about the fact that we did the same exact thing. Yeah. Now, and I think what we were talking about um, offline, all three of us, is that one of these days we're going to talk about some of the messages we receive and some of people uh, will send us on Instagram or on uh, any of the socials. And somebody yeah. said, well, there's no mass graves of of native babies. There's no mass graves of native babies, even though it's been documented in Canada and here in the United States. But going back to the separation of church and state, I mean, you have to remember for us, historically, indigenous people, we don't, well, today we don't even use the word church, if we're going to talk about our spiritualities, right? right. Um, there, Some people are going to say the Native American church. There's some nomenclature out there. But for us as indigenous people, we there wasn't a separation because our, just like it was weird for us, Irish and Catholic, um, Protestant and English. But when you're Lakota, you're Lakota. When you're Diné, you're mm. Diné. When you're Ojibwe, you're Ojibwe. That is your culture. That is your faith. That is your tradition. There's no separation between the two to fight each other. And so for indigenous people, I think we are, we're, we're still, I mean, it's still new to us that there is this separation of church and state uh, or th- that they, this is how they legislate. They base their decisions off of their Christianity, but the Lakota weren't going and trying to do anything to the Cherokee. We weren't trying right. to convert them into Lakota and the Cherokee <laughs> weren't trying to convert the Oneidas. So it, we see that there's there's this battle between Christians and that has always thrown us off. The Catholics and then you have the Protestants and it was weird to see them do that. And then on top of that, they had a completely, they had different cultures from different parts of the world. So I believe in the separation of church, church and state, but historically, so people know, for indigenous people, that wasn't always the case. I mean, in terms of the diversity of beliefs, we talk a lot about how the founders, you know, were all about religious plurality. They, some were Christian, some were deists, right? Um, but, but you know, the diversity suggests they would support a pluralistic society where there's a lot of different religious beliefs. That's the the hype we tell ourselves. But when it came to the indigenous people, it wasn't the case. It was all about you have to convert to our religion across the right. boards, across the boards. Right. And that and that's no insult to indigenous people who love their Christian faith. That's that's great. But the, the fact is their ancestors weren't given a choice. Right. Remember, it was kill the Indian, save the man. And then there was the quote that uh, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. And so that was the belief. It's like, look, you guys can either be living Indians or living Christians or dead Indians. And that was the only option you you got from the Christians. And in many ways, you know, that happened when they saw that Two-Spirit was a thing, like homosexuality being a blessing and not an abomination. They were they were mm-hmm. like, these people are, they're not they're not Christian, they're not godly. These These are people that need to be massacred and removed from the land. And they did. The trail of tears. I mean, these yeah. things happened and they're documented. Julie? 
Yeah, no, that's true. Um, the there's a Bishop Grandin, and and he actually was one of the uh, first people to kind of help create these residential schools. And the message for him was the message that he gave was that that the schools are designed to make Indigenous people feel shame for being Native, and so that was the whole point. That was the right. whole point of the schools. Right. We are at 866-997-4748, 866-997-GRIT. Um, thanks for indulging me on my topics. I want to now ask you guys about the Iowa caucus this week, or the Iowa caucuses uh, between DeSantis, Donald Trump, and Nikki Haley. Our media is really trying to sell us on the differences between these three people. I, I, I think the, the <laughs> greatest similarity is that all three of them have a broad uh, history of contempt towards indigenous people. Is it true that Ron DeSantis really claimed the U.S. was not on stolen land? Mm-hmm. Yes, he did. He surely did. And he, thought, know, he said um, it was and, wrong for people to teach that. For any, any teacher to teach that, yeah. it's wrong. And it's, and it's incorrect, he said. Well, I was going to say, when political leaders like Ron uh, DeSantis deny the foundational truth of our country, such as the fact that the United States was built on land taken from Native Americans, it sets a dangerous precedent. And it's not just you know about erasing Native American history, but it's about undermining the very idea of historical accountability. And that kind of denial can lead to a broader dismissal of the systemic injustices faced by various communities, particularly people of color. That's right. I mean, Nikki Haley, who again, changed her name from Nimrata, because her party is so racist and she knew that she had to change her name to succeed in her racist party, came out this week and said that America has never been a racist country. I, I feel bad she hasn't been told about slavery or the ethnic cleansing of indigenous people yet. But like, it's just shocking that in the Republican bubble, I mean, are, are they raised to think this way? Or do these people just think if I can be the most racially insensitive, I'll get the most support of good white conservative Christians? Well, the scary part is that they really believe these things. They really believe that this isn't that there isn't stolen mm -hmm. land. Uh, they they really believe that Native Americans uh, lost fair and square. And like, what does fair and square mean when these Republicans say that to Native Americans to indigenous people? That's like so murder, rape, removal, sophistry, uh, dubious treaties, just straight up lying, utilizing the Bible to persecute a whole race of people. That's fair mm -hmm. and square. And so the fact that she would say something like that doesn't surprise me because that's today's Republican Party. That's today's even she doesn't claim to be MAGA, but she still uses some of the same language. And so as indigenous people, you hear that and you don't get the shock because we know that's what they fucking believe. It's not sh yeah. shocking to hear Nikki Haley or any any candidate, especially over the past, like, 20 years, anybody come out and say something so ridiculous because that's what they truly believe. And they feel that that's how they'll get the, you know, the Bible belt and their evangelicals and their hardcore white Christians to come and, you know, be on their side. You're so yeah. right. But I, I wonder, Go ahead. Go I was going to say, I wonder what, what, um, what kind of history class did Nikki Haley attend? And I was thinking, you know, she must've majored in historical amnesia at the college of convenient <laughs> oversight because I mean, Trail of Tears, the Jim Crow laws, the Chinese Exclusion Act. You know, That's right. the fact that I think honestly, that really is a sign of the health of a democracy, you know, in being able to understand, you know, the, the history. And if you can't talk about the history and the struggles as part of the larger American narrative, 
you know, it, it's a sign of an unhealthy democracy. And yes. when these things are denied or minimized by leaders, it's not just an affront to the communities, but it's a red flag, honestly, for the health of, of a democracy. And Nikki Haley saying these things, like, you're right, it's, you know, who's the audience? You know, obviously, she's trying to get uh, votes and people behind her. And so to say that the United States has never been a racist country, like, where did she I mean, go to like, school? Who would, I, mean, I would love to talk to her history professors. Like, I expect to hear the lie, we used to be a racist country, but we've come so far. That's the Supreme Court, right? That's the Congress. To actually say we've yeah. never been a racist country. And this week I was engaged on social media by a, a, a MAGA dude who claimed to be full Cherokee, who was so hardcore Donald mm. Trump. And and I was like, but you, you know about how Trump's like encouraged the mocking of Native people and he's used hateful language mm-hmm. and he called Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas as a... As a slur, he didn't care. Uh, I'm like, yeah. what about promoting voter suppression, cutting? He 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 wanted to get rid of SNAP. He wanted to get rid of TAMF. He wants to greenlight pipelines yeah. across Native Treaty lands, slashing the Bears Ears Monument. I, I mean, mm-hmm. not 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 legislating uh, the attacks on land trusts. I could go on for days. Donald Trump's got a 30 year history. Mm-hmm of being incredibly shitty and condescending to indigenous peoples right down to, I remember him testifying before Congress in 93 about the casino Uh owners saying, they didn't look like Indians to me. I mean, (laughs) it's it's incredible. The racism is there. It's been there for decades and we can't seem to get the mainstream media to talk about it. Well, I mean, I've said this many times, man. There's hardly any natives in the newsroom. And then the ones that are in there, they claim to be a quarter Cherokee. And then that means they're not involved in the community. Okay, the, again, yeah. these are the box checkers. I've, ta- I've talked about this to you before. Yeah. Box checkers are the ones that are going to check American Indian or Native American or Alaska Native. And then they're just going to be like, oh, well, that's it. My family has high cheekbones and I, I'm Native American. And then they get the job. But these aren't the people that know yeah. how to pitch the stories because they're not so involved true. in the community. Regardless if you were born on yeah. the res or not, being involved in the community means you are around other indigenous people. You have the elders, you have the friends, you have anything. Even there in New York City, there's the American Indian Community House. And even right. though we're the smallest racial minority in our ancestral land, even in places like New York, we have we have Fry Bread Friday, where we all can come together in the West Village and we're like, hi, I'm Simon, I'm Oglala, or hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm Dene. But it is this idea also of us having to look a specific way is not something, uh, he said that in 1993, there are still people today that'll just look at your face or examine you and be really disappointed you don't have long hair. And they'll be like, you don't look like an Indian to me. This is still what people fucking think. And I know- Which is also a Yeah. It's a microaggression when people say, well, you don't look like a native. Do you know what I mean? It's a microaggression. Am I supposed to be butt naked on the back of a horse? Is that what it is? I need to be in a fucking loincloth? Is that, it's like Jesus. And that's the sad part is that, you know, and again, you, you're not going to find a lot of indigenous people with the GOP. You're not going to find a lot of indigenous people that are going to be on the side of, of whether it's Nikki Haley or DeSantis or Trump, because again, just like you said, these people want to open up our reservations to drilling. They want to come in and they want, they will desecrate graves like they did at Standing Rock. And then I hate the part where they're like, no, it's a safe pipeline. No, that's why there's plumbers, dipshit. No fucking pipe. Is, is foolproof and won't bust. And at Standing Rock, it wasn't long before that happened. We told them it's they're going to break. They're like, no, they'll be fine. And these people want to open up our territories, our treaty protected territories to white hands and drill baby drill. Yes. 
So we're, yeah. we're not anticipating. I mean, again, if you see a, a native behind them, I'm going to call bullshit. Yeah, I agree. The other thing, too, I wanted to just mention, Slim, you brought up the pipelines. And I worked with a lot of communities where these pipelines had come in. and But I was working on the mental health side. And I was working on the sex trafficking side. Because what I will tell you, and your listeners may not realize this, but when these pipelines come in, so do the workers. And with them, there's a surge in local violence and a dark underbelly of sex trafficking. And mm. I don't know if people realize that that's what's happening. You know, um, indigenous communities often where these pipelines are going through, the communities are rural and they're under-resourced. And so what yes. does that mean? They become hotspots for this type of crime. And in these communities, especially our women and girls are in danger. And I don't know if people think or, or even realize that that's um, what's happening. So when these projects and these pipelines are going through, it's not just the land that we're trying to um, protect. It's our women and our girls. And I've worked in communities where I'm dealing with these these usually non-Indigenous workers coming into these communities, seeing that there's so much poverty in these communities, it's under-resourced, it's under-policed, and they are taking advantage and exploiting young girls. I've taken 12-year-old girls off the back pages that were being sold for sex myself, mm. like gone into these communities and done that. So when we're talking about the pipelines being detrimental, it's not just to the, the environment, it's also to our communities and to our girls mm. and women especially. Amen. Look up so man camps, everybody. That, yeah. That's right. If, we, that's, we if you want to learn more about it, go to man, look up, just Google man camps. That's what they yeah. built around the, in those territories. Uh, guys, we have to take a break, yes. but we have a lot of callers who want to ask you all some questions. Can we come back in two minutes and listen to some of our evil army of the night and take some questions for you guys? Let's do it. Simon sure. and Julie will be taking your questions. We're at 866-997-4748, and we will be right back. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We are back on SiriusXM, taking your calls at 866-997-4748. Simon Moya-Smith and Julie Francella are with us. Is it true that Native Americans have the lowest life expectancy of any racial or ethnic group in the U.S., guys? Yeah, Sadly, my tribe specifically. True. Yeah, my tribe Tell me. in specific, the Lakotas. Uh, life expectancy for women is 52 years and the expectancy for men is 48. <sighs> Amazing. Uh, Julie, it's my understanding in Montana, indigenous people die a generation younger than white people. Mm -hmm. 
This is true. So on average, Indigenous people live 5.5 years less than the national average. So that's right across the board. But in certain areas, the gap stretches to an alarming 10 years, but in certain areas, 20 years. So areas like Simon was saying, um, his reservation is one of them. And you you have to wonder why. Why is this happening? And we we we've talked about before, you know, sort of the, the historical trauma, centuries of displacement and cultural erosion that still bleeds into today's mental and physical health crisis. But also many Native communities grapple with chronic underfunding in healthcare. That's Hospitals right. are scarce and those hospitals that are available are often under equipped. And then yeah. also you've got the poverty trap, you know, the poverty yeah. trap. Uh, one in four Native Americans live in poverty. And when I say poverty, I'm not just talking about lack of money. It's about lack of options, options for healthcare, education, and, and Simon can talk about this, food, healthy food, because most indigenous communities are in food deserts. That's right. Totally right. Mm -hmm. Let's go to the uh, the phones. Um, let's go to Dylan yes. in New Mexico. Hello, Dylan. You're on with Simon and Julie. Good evening. Hi, Dylan. Hey, John, Simon, Julie. How's Hi. it going? Hi. Good. How are you? Good. I'm great. I'm great. I just want to let you guys know I love this uh, section of the show. I'll always make sure I tune in. Thank you. And um, Thank you. Yeah, so I've, I've told John this before, but I'm, I'm not originally from uh, New Mexico. I'm from Texas. I've been in Albuquerque about four years. And um, the, the cultural difference is it's amazing, but it's just so much more to engulf in, like, to study about. And I've noticed that a lot of the tribes, they all have a lot of different stories and a lot of different governmental subsidies. For instance, um, like, sometimes I'll do some Uber driving, and um, I'll go to some of the uh, nicer tribes they're all gated. The houses are a lot nicer. And then sometimes I'll go to tribes that don't have any gated communities and it's just a lot rougher. And I just wanted to know what the, um, I guess, what the, the government standards are for being able to give uh, certain tribes the amount of money that they get. And, um, and I understand mm. that, you know, politics plays a big role in it as well. But, mm. you know, within the tribes, but I just want to sort of get more detail about that. Sure. Um, so, yeah. So I'm in New Mexico as well. So I understand what you're referencing. But if you go to other states um, and, and you're not going to see as a rich indigenous representation as you will in places like Santa Fe and uh, Albuquerque, because we're surrounded by a lot of reservations. Deb Holland's reservation, um, our secretary of interior, it's Laguna. And that's just down the way here. But as separate sovereign nations, you are going to see uh, some wealthier tribes and some that aren't so mm -hmm. wealthy. But a lot of that is also based on location. So, for example, what you yeah, were talking about here in New Mexico, there is going to be some wealthier tribes because they're right off the freeway. And that means they can have a casino that's going to be that's going to turn into a lot of foot traffic. But if you're over there at the Laguna, where Deb Holland's people are from, you're not going to have as much foot traffic. Or if you go to my reservation, the Pine Ridge Reservation, that's not a lot of foot traffic. But if you're right, like right next to, say, Phoenix, um, there's I think it's the Talking Stick Casino that's right off the freeway. And once you cross that freeway, you're in Scottsdale. So, of mm. course, they have a huge facility mm -hmm. and they're loaded with cash. So a lot of it has to do with location for a lot. And then that's something that is very modern. And again, 
Others yeah. are going to be oil and gas tribes as well. Some natives are going to be like, no oil and gas on our res, fuck off. Others are going to be like, all right, oil and gas. And then they have money and then they become something called per diem natives. Per diem natives are the ones that get money from either casinos, oil and gas, or whatever. And everybody who's enrolled mm -hmm. in the tribe gets a little bit or it yes. gets their, their share. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's okay, what the so Cherokee Reservation like in North Carolina yeah, did with the casino revenue, and it eliminated poverty in the community. Mm-hmm. Right on. Yeah. So, yeah. Dylan, thank you. Uh, same thing. Yeah. Same ahead, thing. Please. The, um, tr well, the, what Simon was talking about, or you guys were talking about um, sort of an annual payment or an income amount from the resources. So in Canada, that's actually what's supposed to happen. The treaties were signed. The Canadian government was supposed to be sharing the wealth of the resources. The Canadian government did not do that. Treaties were broken. I think I mentioned before, um, on my reservation, uh, people get, since 1850s, $4 a year. That's their annuity. That's their annual payment. And this is the one that's in the Supreme Court of Canada right now. And they're saying that actually that the, the Canadian government was supposed to be paying you know, much higher amounts because they're making money hand over right. fist off of the resources in the area. And so that's the $300 billion that's now back paid owed to um, the 21 tribes that signed that treaty. So, you know, there's a lot of that happening right now where nations are saying, hey, you know, you're actually supposed to be, you know, um, sharing the, the wealth of the resources that are actually on the land that you pushed us off of. And that was part of the treaty. And so that's kind of, there's some reckoning that's happening right now. And again, I, didn't, I don't, I wouldn't say it's reparations, but it's just what's been owed for, you know, many, many years. Mm. But quickly, wow. it's per cap. I forgot. Yeah. Not per diem. It's per cap. Per capita. Per, per cap. Yeah. It's per uh -huh. cap. Dylan, thank you again. I hope that answers your question. Appreciate it. Thanks, yeah, Dylan. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Let's go to Mitch in Kent State. Mitch, you're on with Simon and Julie. Welcome. Thank you, John. Hi, Mitch. Hi, Julie. Again, nice meeting you, and I really appreciate you welcoming our family to your artwork there. Uh, Thank you. But, you know what, ever since meeting you and listening to John's and, and listening to this segment, you guys have really opened my mind. I really appreciate that. I'm so ignorant. I uh, I always thought it was a kind of a history buff, you know, I always loved, you know, cultural events and, you know, and, and American history and stuff. But I dug deep because, you know, we live in the Cuyahoga Valley, which, you know, very rich, you know, at the time with the uh, Native Americans, of course, the river. And then the shame of the, of the, of the fire we had in, in 1969, you know, and I always thought, my God, you guys were the original environmentalists. I mean, as far as keeping the land preserved and, 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 and you know, pristine. And yeah. I always, always thought back mm -hmm. to that fire. But, but the other thing was, uh, I, just, I, had, I had to dig, dig, dig even deeper with the history there. The Indian Relocation Act, I had no idea. In 1956, uh, mm -hmm. I, was this a, a federal... Uh, uh, mandate or something. This is an yes. Eisenhower thing that they they wanted the um, them to come to the cities and relocate and from their original ancestries and and have a melting pot with uh, you know with with the uh, with with the community uh, you know and to well, I don't know it's to dilute your heritage. Is that what was that the whole idea of this? I mean I am I'm so ignorant. I just just trying to it's okay. Figure 
allowed. And not a lot of it is really taught. The Indian Relocation Act, and this was back in the 1950s, what they did, and we have to remember, you know, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, they didn't know about oil and gas. So what they did, so the United States moved indigenous people west. And what they did was they didn't put us on pristine land or anything that was beautiful. Sometimes they would put us in these isolated areas where nothing grew. Well, nothing fucking grew because it was rich with oil, gas, and minerals. So when the United States discovered oil, gas, and minerals, and they noticed that they had put indigenous people on prison camps, now known as reservations, um, on this oil and gas rich land. They're like, shit, how do we get them off? So what they did was during the Indian Relocation Act, they said, well, let's move them to the closest big city, put them in housing and give them vocational training. And a lot of cities around the United States, Minneapolis, Denver, Los Angeles, Seattle, these are Indian relocation cities. But what happened was a culture shock. Indigenous people didn't know how to live in these cities, in these environments. And the housing was substandard. The training was terrible. And so there was this shock. And so, yes, you're right. There was this idea of pushing natives into the city, but it was it wasn't just to assimilate natives. Their whole goal was to get their their hands on the oil and gas. That's it. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I guess the Cleveland area here in Northeast Ohio, uh, they, they relocated them. And, you know, they, they just were never able to adapt or adjust because it's not their, it's not in their, you know, in, in their blood. It's, it's, it's two different cultures. You know, it, it, you cannot force people to, you know, I, I guess, you know, the American the dream of everyone holding hands and, 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 and you know, and, and, and friendly neighbors and working together and, and, and everything else and family sharing. I, I understand that's that, that part of this, uh, this, uh, you know, dream, but there's people that, uh, you know, that, that have a, uh, a, b- a bad side to them that, that like this relocation thing. That, 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 that wasn't, uh, you know, that wasn't the hmm. wrong intention. Let's put it that way. It was wrong. wrong. From the well, beginning. think of it this but way too, really quickly, if you don't mind me saying, let's say you're a Catholic and you live in Chicago, but you get a job offer in New York. There's tons of Catholic churches in New York, or let's say the other way around, and that you move to Chicago and there's a Catholic churches. But for indigenous people, our spirituality is with the land and the location that we are at. Yes. So it's not like we can, you move indigenous people away from everything spiritual and cultural and linguistic and family that you know. So you don't have the luxury like all of these Europeans who came over here to just go, oh, I'm going to move somewhere and I'm sure there's going to be a church. That's not how it worked with us. That's so true. And these are the things that, you know, even nice white people who are dumb like me would never even think of because we're not taught this perspective. Mitch, I thank you for the call. Really good. Why why don't you ever call my my show with good questions like that, Mitch? You just call and talk to me about prog rock from the 70s. Simon and Julie, we got to go. Thank you. Keep it tuned to progress all day long, and I'll see you guys tomorrow morning. Peace. 